Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Patricia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in September in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The days are getting shorter and the nights longer here in the Northern Hemisphere as we head towards the end of the year. This is made all the clearer as this month is home to the September equinox, the time of year when the daylight and nighttime portions of the day are of equal length. What exactly is happening on this day to make it special? Well, it's all because of the intersection of two imaginary lines on the sky. One is the celestial equator, the projection of the Earth's equator out onto the night sky. The other is the ecliptic, the apparent path of the sun against the stars, which is actually the Earth orbiting around the sun. On an equinox, the sun's position on the ecliptic coincides with the celestial equator. This time, the Sun is moving from being slightly north of the equator to being slightly south of it. In other words, passing summer from the northern hemisphere to the southern one. So expect longer nights and colder temperatures in the north before too long. These longer nights will give far more time to observe the night sky. This month's array of planets remains limited to the gas giants in our solar system, with the rocky inner planets Mercury, Venus and Mars also too close to the sun in the sky to observe safely and easily. Jupiter will still be above the horizon in the early evening, but will be setting earlier each night from around 11pm at the beginning of the month to around 9.30pm towards the end. Saturn too, with its striking ring system, will be visible in the southeast until around midnight, while Uranus will be around for much of the night. However, this month, Neptune will be in the best place for observation, reaching opposition on the 9th of September, making it as close and bright as this pale, distant planet ever gets. This month, the moon begins in a thin crescent phase. The 31st of August will have been, for much of the Earth's surface, the first night that the crescent can be seen with the unaided eye, known as the New Crescent Moon. The Islamic calendar, which works primarily off of the sighting of this thin crescent, begins its new year on the following day, making the 1st of September Al-Hijra, the first day of the Islamic calendar for much of the world. As the calendar is based on the lunar cycle, which does not fit exactly into the more common solar calendar, Al-Hijra moves back about 10 days each year. This month's full moon, sometimes known as the harvest moon or corn moon, due to its approximate coincidence with the year's harvests, will occur on the 14th of September, and we followed, followed two weeks later by the new moon on the 28th. The darker nights will help make spotting deep sky objects all the easier. The summer triangle remains high in the sky through much of the night. This trio of stars, Altair from the constellation Aquila, Vega in Lyra and Deneb in Cygnus marks an interesting area for finding astronomical objects. One particular gem is the Ring Nebula, just underneath the bright star Vega. While invisible to the unaided eye, a pair of binoculars will show a faint smudge of light, 
while a small telescope will begin to pull out the ring of gas for which it is named. These are the outer layers of a dead star, originally similar in mass to our own Sun. In fact, this faint cloud is a reasonable example of what our own solar system may look like long after our Sun has reached the end of its life in 5 or 6 billion years. The Summer Triangle also surrounds the brightest part of the Milky Way, our own galaxy, visible from the Northern Hemisphere. Look for a pale trail of light crossing the entire sky. At midnight, this line will run almost directly overhead from north to south. For a real test of your eyesight, there is another pale smudge of light that marks the most distant object visible to the unaided eye. Look to the east, anti-clockwise of the great square of Pegasus, the winged horse constellation, to find a faint blob, often most easily visible in your peripheral vision. This is the core of the Andromeda galaxy, two and a half million light years from Earth, meaning you are seeing it as it was well before modern humans walked the planet. If your eyes were sensitive enough to see its faint outer regions, the vast galaxy would span a region several times larger than the full moon. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rng.co.uk. But now, it's time for our Cosmic News. Welcome to the Cosmic News Story part of our podcast. Each month, Greg and I will choose a story that has appeared in the past month, either a story about astronomy or space exploration, and we'll talk about our chosen topic, and you, of course, get the opportunity to vote for your favorite story in our Twitter poll. So, Greg, what have you chosen for us for this month? Very recently, on the 25th of August, we had the 30th anniversary of Voyager 2's flyby of Neptune, the first and only visit to this distant planet by a probe from Earth. So, today I'm going to tell you about uh, a pair of amongst the most distant objects ever sent out into space, the Voyager probes. Um, now, Voyager was the upshot of uh, NASA's Grand Tour program. Uh, this was based on a lucky realization that shortly after space travel began in the 1950s and 60s, there was actually going to be a rare alignment of the planets. Now, when I say an alignment of the planets, I do not mean the sci-fi version of an alignment of the planets, which is all the planets in one long straight line, which you've probably seen in all sorts of sci-fi films and at least one Tomb Raider movie. Yeah, um, and also heralding in the end of the world or the opening of absolutely. Pandora's box or some something along those lines. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, no, I am talking about an alignment of the planets that allows you to jump from one to the next by aiming at where it's going to be when you reach there, which sounds a little bit odd, but uh, think of it the same way as um, uh, a player trying to intercept a ball while playing a game of cricket or, or uh, a baseball. Uh, they're running towards where the ball is going to be, not where the ball currently is, because if they do that, they'll miss it. Um, that's exactly how space travel works. You aim where the planet's going to be and intercept it on the way, often using slingshot maneuvers from various different planets to gain either a speed boost or a change in direction. And the grand plan was to produce groups of probes that would go to each of the planets in turn. Um, this was scaled down, as you might be aware, to only two probes, uh, Voyager 1 and 2, 
um, each based on the Mariner space probes. Now the Mariner space probes was a succession of similar probes that eventually went to Mars, Venus and to Mercury um, from 1962 through to 1973. Uh, they had a reasonably high success rate, 7 out of the 10 Mariner probes achieved uh, the science that they wanted to, um, which made them a good model for later programs such as the Viking orbiters around Mars, the Cassini-Huygens probe uh, which went to Saturn and of course to the Voyager probes that we're talking about today. Now the program was originally scaled all the way back to just being Jupiter and Saturn for each of these two probes, but with the potential to head out into the even more distant parts of our solar system if possible. The probes were never designed to stay at any of the planets for very long, instead having flybys of each of the planets. Um, so all of the observations had to be made from a distance and within a relatively short space of time. Um, and the distance could be quite large, although uh, Voyager 2's flyby of Neptune was only a few thousand kilometres away, remarkably narrow. Um, its flyby of Jupiter was over half a million kilometres, so a really great distance that it was trying to do these observations over. Uh, so many of the instruments were various versions of cameras looking at different parts of the, the types of lights that are available to us, um, whether by taking simple images as normal cameras would, uh, or splitting that light out into its constituent parts, which we call a spectrum, and analysing each individual bit. Um, some devices were designed to measure the strength and direction of magnetic fields around the planets. Others uh, could determine the number of particles of solar wind, this material blown off by the sun, which is what dominates the material between the planets. Uh, space is not quite a vacuum, there is some stuff out there and solar wind is what dominates it inside of our solar system. Um, Somewhat strangely, Voyager 2 was actually launched first in October 20, uh, sorry, August 20th, 1977, um, but Voyager 1 was only a couple of weeks later, um, and as it turned out, due to the way that Voyager 1's trajectory was going to be, it would actually arrive at Jupiter first, uh, two years after it launched. Now, Voyager 2 hit problems almost six months in um, when its main radio receiver stopped working. So it's no longer able to receive uh, signals through it, um, and its backup wasn't working properly. So it could only receive signals at a very specific frequency, like using um, a somewhat dated now a radio in your car to try to tune to a very specific frequency to get a particular radio station. Um, but this specific frequency can be affected by the Doppler shift. So if the Earth happened to be spin, if the NASA HQ happened to be spinning towards where Voyager 2 was or away from it, that would change its frequency. Um, if Voyager 2 was traveling fast or slow, that would change the frequency. Uh, if uh, the receiver's temperature changed, that would change the frequency that it could receive. So from that point forwards, uh, precise tuning of each broadcast was required. Both spacecraft arrived at Jupiter in 1979, January for Voyager 1, July for Voyager 2, and it was here that they started to observe things like the Great Red Spot, finally uh, cementing it as an actual storm on the surface of Jupiter. Um, the Voyager probes also discovered that Io had active volcanoes, which hadn't been noticed before, um, which are particularly su uh, surprising, 
and photographed the faint rings of Jupiter, which again had never been seen before. In late 1980 brought Voyager 1 to Saturn. Voyager 2 was about a year after that, um, and each used Jupiter as a slingshot to get itself to uh, where Saturn was going to be. Uh, it was decided uh, that Voyager 1 should prioritise flying by Titan, the largest moon of Saturn, um, and the only moon in the solar system with a known strong atmosphere, uh, prioritising that over going on to Pluto, which means that Pluto would have to wait another 35 years for new horizons to eventually come, uh, by which time, of course, it would no longer be a planet. <laughs> and that still hurts me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Uh, they found that Saturn has far less helium in its outer atmosphere than Jupiter. This helium may well be settling out um, into the centre of the, the planet. Now, a motion of material inwards is a gravitational contraction. And that means that you actually release gravitational potential energy as heat. And that would explain why Saturn radiates more heat than it actually receives from the Sun. And thanks to Voyager 1's flyby of Titan, we now know that it is likely the only other body in the solar system that has liquid lakes on its surface, large bodies of liquid something. Uh, of course, for Earth, it's water, large quantities of water. On Titan, it's methane at minus 180 degrees Celsius. Rather chilly. Now, that effectively ended Voyager 1's tour of the planets but not for Voyager 2. Voyager 2's trajectory allowed it to continue on with the Grand Tour. It became the only first, first and only probe to visit either Uranus or Neptune, and it actually did both, uh, discovering multiple moons for each, studying the unique conditions on Uranus granted by its near sideways tilt, observed Uranus's strange moon Miranda, discovering that it was covered in cracks that made it look as though maybe it might have been torn apart at some point and put back together. Um, and 30 years ago took the images that would show that Neptune had rings as well. Now, the Voyager probes were, and indeed are, not finished yet. Uh, each continues to travel outwards from the Sun, now in the interstellar portion of their trip. Uh, in 2012 for Voyager 1 and late 2018 for Voyager 2, they passed into what we call interstellar space. This is where they moved from the point where the solar wind is dominating their um, uh, uh, the, the space around them, the material that's around them, and moved into something called the interstellar medium, which is the, the very diffuse matter that populates between the stars. So again, space is not a true vacuum, it has a bit of stuff in it, and the interstellar medium is what's between the stars. It's, uh, to be clear though, Voyager 2 has not left the solar system, neither has Voyager 1. Uh, the solar system is the region where objects orbit around the Sun rather than around other objects or just generally in the, in the galaxy. Um, and it's going to be 300 years yet before uh, either of them reach the Oort cloud, which is still definitely part of our own solar system, a grand uh, mass of uh, rocks and uh, ice which are uh, orbiting around the Sun. 
um, and it will be tens of thousands of years before it reaches the other end of the Oort cloud and we can finally say with reasonable certainty that the Voyager probes have actually left the solar system. Uh, their final fate is unclear. Um, neither of them is aimed for any particular solar system um, and it will be a very, very long time before any of them actually reach them. 40,000 years is the, the likely time before it reach, before either of them uh, reach closest approach to any other star. But even then, they'll be over a light year away from any other star, so it's not exactly a close approach. And although there's no specific target, eventually, likely, it will. End, uh, one of these probes will end up in the backyard of some uh, solar system. Um, but it will probably not be for hundreds, if not uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to come. That's of course assuming they don't smack into something on the way. Yeah, that's true. And of course, if they do land up in someone's backyard, we have conveniently given them a map of how to find us in the form of the golden Oops. record on Indeed. the uh, Voyager spacecraft. Yes. So that's so one way we sort of said we're here and given information about how to how to find us. Yeah. And um, also uh, something that's really awesome is you can watch the real time communication if you go onto NASA's Deep Space Network and every now and then one of the radio telescopes around the world is communicating with the Voyager spacecraft and it's yeah, amazing absolutely. to think that they're 40, over 40 years old now, the spacecraft, uh, yes. and they're still going strong. I think I possibly Voyager 2 recently, they had to shut one of the instruments down. So they, they, they have now reached the point where things are going to be slowly turning themselves off, um, mainly because uh, the Voyager probes won't have enough power to run them anymore. Um, it's expected sort of mid-2020s, that's when we're going to, to lose contact with them. Not because they've gone too far out of range, but simply because they don't, they don't have, have the power to do it anymore. Um, yes, so uh, a little way to go, at least. Yeah. Well, that was a fantastic story, and as you know, I really do enjoy space exploration has far <laughs> too much and uh, it's it's i think stories like these that people need to be aware of as well that these spacecraft still have that legacy and mm. and we are still using the data that they obtained which is amazing yes. to think of as well absolutely well for this month my story involves an anemic star an anniversary and a very special birthday wish. And no, you haven't tuned into some bizarre entertainment news outlet where I'm <laughs> going to tell you about some Hollywood star. Um, in actual fact, a paper was published fairly recently which reports on a discovery of an ultra metal poor star. So in other words, a star with the lowest ever measured abundance of iron, hence it's an anemic star. Now, this particular star is a red giant star, and it's orbiting out in the halo of our galaxy. But what makes this star special is that it actually carries evidence of a class of stars that have been hypothesized to exist, but were fairly short-lived, so we don't see any today. Now, Carl Sagan once famously stated that we are made of star stuff, and it's true. The iron in your blood and the calcium in your bones all came from the death of a star, from deaths of stars. It's also true for stars that form today, because the cloud of gas and dust in which they form contains elements that were forged in the deaths of other stars in our galaxy. Now, when we talk about stars, we typically sort of classify them into two distinct population groups, which we call 
population one and population two stars. Now there are differences which distinguish the two groups, but one of the main differences is the metal content of the stars. And at this point, I should probably explain what astronomers mean by metals. Indeed. And this is where the anniversary comes in, because 2019 actually marks 150 years since Dmitry Mendeleev published his first draft of the periodic oh, table yes. of elements, his pioneering efforts in the search for order amongst the elements. Now, of course, we're all familiar with the periodic table of elements. It was drummed into our heads at schools. And we know the various groups, including, but of course not limited to, the alkali metals, alkaline earth metals, transition metals, poor metals. But for astronomers, the periodic table of elements simply consists of hydrogen, helium, and metals. <laughs> <laughs> We're very much interested in making things as simple as possible. So Mendeleev, Mendeleev comes up with this beautiful periodic table with lots of different categories, lanthanides, actinides, all sorts of things going on. And we just go, ah, hydrogen, helium, the rest. Yeah. <laughs> so if you ever hear about astronomers talking about metals, pretty much everything after helium. Yes. <laughs> so we, we keep things simple. <laughs> so apologies to Mendeleev. That's just how we do things in astronomy. So it turns out that population one stars are actually metal rich and contain about two to three percent of metal. So if we have a look at their overall content, metals make up about two to three percent. Um, and these stars are relatively young, having formed within the last few billion years. Remember, astronomy, everything's relative. So that for us is that's young. That's, that's very young. Population one stars are themselves actually divided into what we call extreme population one stars, which are the most metal rich and are the youngest in the group. And then you have your intermediate population one stars, which are slightly metal rich. <laughs> and our own sun is an intermediate population yeah. one star. We then have the population two stars, which we consider to be metal poor, sorry, metal poor, as they contain only about 0.1% of metals. And these stars are actually relatively old stars. And as with population one stars, we can then divide them into extreme and intermediate classes as well. So for comparison, intermediate population two stars are less metal rich than intermediate population one stars. So it can get a bit confusing, but we've sort of figured out these categories. And that's why when we study the stars, we can sort of slot them. As you said, astronomers like categories. We like to sort things out. To, now the differences... To add, to add an extra bit of confusion yeah of course population one stars are stars which were born later than population two stars yes that that's exactly the case because the, again as you know we we don't even talk about the magnitude scale because we're trying to explain to people no but it's a negative number so it's far too just the minds <laughs> are blown but um the differences that we see in the metal content um and the age between those two population groups exactly suggests what you've just stated that population two stars are older than population one stars and they actually formed early on during the formation of our own galaxy so if you consider our galaxy at that time the galaxy would have contained a gas that had quite a low metal content but it turns out that there was another population of stars so-called population three stars yeah. which were the <laughs> very first generation of stars to form within a galaxy so again remember Population one stars are now, population two stars are slightly older, and then we get to population three. 
Now, these stars that would have formed at that time would have been composed entirely out of the pristine material that came from the Big Bang, because there were no other stars before then, so there would have been no metal, or very, very, very little um, metal content in those stars. And it's the population three stars that we've gone on to produce the metals that we observe in population two stars. Now, we haven't seen any population three star haven't observed any yet, so that's why they're considered hypothetical stars. Um, as an example, if you have had a high-mass population 3 star, it would have been a very short-lived star. And so all we would observe today would be the remnants of those stars. But what we can do is we could probably study them indirectly through their supernova ejector, which would have ended up enriching the gas clouds from which the population two stars would have formed. And it's for this very reason why the anemic star is so special. Because analysis of the light or the spectrum of the star reveals that the iron content is just one part per 50 billion. Now the author on the paper sort of put it in context and describes it as being like one drop of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Hmm. So it gives you some idea of just how low that uh, content is. And they go on to suggest that this star likely formed just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang and formed shortly after one of the first generation stars, one of those population three stars, exploded. And based on their models, uh, they sort of suggest that the star that exploded, well, it was a rather unimpressive star. It was only around 10 times more massive than our sun, so not a very big star. And it also exploded rather feebly. Right. Because based on their model, they realized that most of the ejector ended up falling back on the neutron star that was created during the supernova. And so only a small portion of the iron and heavier metals that were actually formed during that star's life made it out into the interstellar medium and that material then would go on to form that star that we're observing today. So based on their modeling and these observations of this population 2 star, they think that this star is giving us evidence that those population 3 stars did exist because I said we haven't been able to observe one but we're trying to study them, as I said, indirectly through these population two stars. Now, earlier on I spoke about the fact that Carl Sagan said we are made of star stuff, but it took quite some time to actually figure out where those heavy metals came from, so those heavier, heavier elements that we saw in stars and that. And in October 1957, a paper titled The Synthesis of the Elements in the Stars was published by authors Margaret Burbage, Jeff Burbage, William Fowler, and Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle, mm, you know yes. from the whole Big Bang terminology. But in this paper, the authors showed how elements are actually formed at various stages of the stellar life cycle. And it took a very long time to pe for people to figure that out. And if you have a look at this paper, it's amazing because they give you all of the pathways showing you how all of these elements can be formed at different stages in a star's life, depending on the mass of the star. And perhaps the most important part of that paper 
was that they demonstrated that the elements that make up everything around us, the elements that we find in ourselves as heavy elements, the iron and the calcium, came from the stars. And that paper remains a significant contribution to nuclear astrophysics. And one of the authors, Margaret Burbage, celebrated her 100th birthday in August. And Margaret herself has made many contributions to astronomy. And she has also observed in some of the harshest conditions, including during the Second World War, where during one observing session, she has notes in her observing log about how two flying bombs exploded nearby. And one was close enough that it shifted her target star out the field of view. But she just simply carried on and put it back <laughs> into the, in the field of view and continued observing. So from this point on, no one can complain about their observing sessions. <laughs> Because no one is probably operating in conditions like that anymore. Um, but Margaret also held the position of the director of the Royal Observatory Greenwich. And so we have to wish Margaret a belated but very happy birthday. Absolutely. Well, that's an absolutely fantastic story. And I, there, there have been attempts to try to find these population three stars um, in other galaxies in the hope that by looking further and further, further back in time, by looking further and further away, you've got more chance of actually finding this pristine material. And there have been a couple of, uh, I remember, uh, sort of clouds of material, stuff that's turning into a mini galaxy. Um, that's doing it relatively recently in, again, billions of years, but still entire galaxies potentially made out of population yeah. three stars in the relatively recent past, because for some incredible reason, no star formation has occurred in that particular cloud throughout the entire yeah. time. Uh, and that would be a fantastic case of study. And I think part of the mystery of these population three stars as well is that they have been some models that have sort of suggested that it is possible that some of the stars that we're observing today that we think are population two stars are actually population three stars just mm. masquerading as population two stars. So it is possible we are in fact looking at a population three star and we don't realize it. <laughs> But yeah, so if we could find these stars, it's certainly going to help fill that gap and really help us to sort of, you know, lay out that path that went straight from the formation of the galaxy, the first stars, all the way through to the stars that we see today. Because as much as we think we know the whole picture, that we do still have gaps that mm, we, need to, we need to fill in. Mm. Well, there you have it. Two more news stories for you to be able to vote on on our Twitter poll at ROG Astronomers. Um, last month, we had uh, from Patricia 3D bioprinting, the ability to try to um, build uh, human tissue and even organs that you could use to uh, deal with injuries on uh, space uh, during space travel. Um, and we had uh, dark stars, uh, a, a potential type of star that may or may not exist, powered by the annihilation of dark matter in its core. With 62% of the vote this month, Dark Stars and My Story did actually win. 
Commiserations to Patricia, uh, perhaps her story uh, on an anemic star, a population three potential star in our galaxy will be able to take it this time. To vote on our Twitter poll, just go to our Twitter feed at ROG Astronomers and you'll find the tweet there. I hope you join us next month for more from Look Up. <laughs>